Welcome to Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis's Wicked Podcast. My name is Jensen, I use she and they pronouns, and I'm the public educator over at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. The title of this episode is Sexual Assault, Shifting to a Culture of Support and Prevention. This episode was recorded on May 25th, 2021. In today's episode, we explore what sexual violence looks like in our region of Guelph Wellington, what trends we've seen arise as the result of the COVID-19 pandemic, the barriers that exist for survivors coming forward and seeking support, and how we can work collectively towards preventing sexual violence and supporting survivors. This podcast is being released for Sexual Assault Prevention Month, which is an opportunity to raise awareness about the impacts of sexual violence and focus on the actions we can take as individuals and communities to stop sexual violence and support survivors. We thank you for being part of the solution just by listening today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, so I am joined today by Jackie Marshall, Katie Montague, and Crystal Muse, my colleagues at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis, and I'll turn it over to them to introduce themselves, to give their name, their pronouns, their position, and something that they're passionate about when it comes to working with survivors of sexual violence, and I'll start with Katie. I'm Katie, I use she, her, and I'm the anti trafficking counselor at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis, and I'm passionate about helping survivors um, as I really enjoy walking alongside them and witnessing the resiliency and the bravery that they do in every step as they navigate their intersections of their lives that are very complicated. Um, I enjoy that. And I also, I also learn so much from them. You know, every day I work, come to work, I learn a little bit of something about myself and about the world and I get to witness just absolute resilience. It's beautiful. Thanks, Katie. Crystal, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so as Jensen mentioned, my name is Crystal Muse. I use pronouns they, them. I am a sexual assault counselor here at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. And one of the reasons that I am deeply passionate about uh, supporting survivors of, of sexual violence is because I am humbled and honored to witness and, and, and hear about stories of resistance. Um, I think the, the dominant narrative around uh, experiences of sexual violence tend to uh, underestimate the, the power that people use in those moments to survive and to get themselves through. And I very much echo what uh, Katie is saying about learning something about how the world works and about how I walk through the world uh, differently because of the stories that I get to uh, that I'm privileged enough to hear and, and be a part of and walk alongside. Thanks, Crystal. And Jackie, would you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Jackie, and I go by the pronouns she and her. I'm one of the sexual assault counselors uh, at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. Um, and there's many reasons why I'm passionate about this work, but I'd say probably one of the biggest is to be able to see the significant transformation for folks and being able to kind of walk through their darkest moments and to, you know, acknowledge the vulnerability and the courage that is taken for them to come through our doors and share their story, being a part of that um, and being a part of their, their journey um, is, is why I do it. Thanks, Jackie and Crystal and Katie. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Uh, and I'm really grateful to work with such amazing people like you and for the work that you do for the community. 
Um, so we're recording this podcast uh, at the end of May, which is Sexual Assault Prevention Month here in Ontario. Um, and so I'm wondering if you folks can speak to what kind of trends are we seeing with regards to uh, sexual assaults in Ontario, in guelph Wellington? What are we seeing in the community with regards to where sexual violence is at at the moment? Uh, and if folks want to speak to as well, how has COVID impacted the situation of sexual violence uh, at the moment? So um, maybe Katie, we'll start with you for this one in terms of what trends are you seeing uh, has COVID impacted those in any way? Yeah. So I think one thing that we've all noticed is it's hard to find statistics around sexual violence in the Guelph Wellington region and in total, actually. Uh, and we see this as uh, it's an underreported crime because of the stigma that's associated with sexual violence, as well as the outcome is fairly uh, re-traumatizing for many people. Going through the police process it can feel worse even than the actual uh, assault happening when it happens because you're going over details, you're agonizing, and it can be really not trauma-informed. That being said, um, between 2018 and 2019, there was a 9.4 decrease in sexual assault being reported in the Guelph Wellington region. And while the 2021 data has not been, or 2020 data has not actually been um, uh, produced by the police, uh, there is talks that this trend will be decreasing again. And it's similar in the University of Guelph. Uh, the numbers say have decreased for people coming forward experiencing sexual assault or sexual violence. And we can see this in relation to what, what Jensen so beautifully said is the COVID, right? Because people are staying inside, it's becoming more hidden. It's becoming more underground. Um, as, as someone on the front lines, I don't see this, uh, this uh, decrease. I see an increase in people seeking services. During the month or the start of the pandemic, we have seen in my program an increase of 300% of people coming forward and seeking to have support in some fashion. And, and I think that's very similar in the SAC programs or the sexual assault center programs as well, because uh, people are experiencing it, but they're just having less opportunity to come forward. There's a lot more uh, worry about going to the hospital if they were to seek support there. Um, there's a lot more worry about um, what the wait times look like. Uh, support services are not be not having outreach, not having in-reach workers there, and um, people aren't, you know, gathering. So there's no one who they can reach out to or speak to. Um, and that's really the largest trend um, that I'm seeing with COVID in, in the Guelph Wellington region. I don't know if anyone wants to jump on that or add. Yeah, I would, I would very much echo what Katie's speaking of. Um, we are seeing generally the more formal channels of reporting, uh, as we can see in the numbers, have decreased. And that's, uh, to me, that is, that underlines the, the importance of how numbers don't always necessarily tell the full story. Um, because I would also echo the, the demand and services that um, we are having people come and who are more willing to look at some of the, the more challenging aspects of their life and how that continues to impact them today. Um, I think COVID is a really interesting layer to add into the work of trauma therapy. Um, and that's because we there's always a bit of pendulation or swinging that happens within trauma work when we're, we don't generally we don't narrow in on the, the traumatic event and only speak about that one thing because people can't necessarily tolerate that level of intensity for a long period of time. And so what I can say from my work, at least, is what I'm noticing is 
the the swinging pattern of of work we do that is focused on traumatic events or on really challenging experiences is also being balanced with a wider variety of life experiences as people are unpacking how trauma has impacted their world and how COVID has compounded that trauma. <clears throat> and because it's a, a virus that has taken, uh, or for many people has created a loss, sense of loss of control and um, you know the, the unpredictability factors and all of those things, they can bring up those same emotions that people experienced when they did have a traumatic challenging event happen in their life. And so as throughout the counseling work, we're needing to kind of um, swing between those detailed memories and, and trying to process through those things as well as the day-to-day -day operations that are being affected as well. Um, and so I think there's, um, we're also having to kind of unpack that kind of survivalist mentality that can happen through that some people have uh, experienced through COVID of um, not necessarily how do we thrive and continue growing, but how do we just get through moment to moment, day by day, with a little more self-compassion um, and a little more uh, belief in ourselves and, and really focusing a lot of the work on how do we really um, reinforce the strength that, that people already have available to them, given the limitations of, of so many systems that we're seeing cracks in the health system, the justice system, the mental health systems. Yeah, I think you've all really beautifully touched on how, you know, it's difficult to point to how large the issues are just with the barriers to reporting and what that means for statistics. Uh, and that, you know, we may be seeing decreases with statistics, but the barriers to accessing services and supports are higher than ever because of COVID. Um, and the ability for, you know, one agency to provide supports for what everyone needs is, is really challenging for, you mentioned, you know, the layered complexities of uh, challenges that all of us are dealing with, with COVID of mental health, you know, financial challenges, food insecurity, housing, and then for those who are also de dealing with trauma, how that looks and that survivalist mentality. Uh, Crystal, is there something else you wanted to add there? Yeah, I think um, there's also been shifts in just how organizations and service providers are offering their services and, and what their capacity is. So shelters that maybe could have housed 100 people are now at a reduced capacity. And, and so in those transitions of, of what processes look like, there's also added layers of confusion for people who might be accessing those services for the first time or trying to access again. And the, the process is different than they've walked through before. The process is not as easy as just showing up to, to a shelter's door, to a medical uh, clinic's door, because there's a few more considerations. Is there virtual options, that sort of thing, um, and reduced capacities. And so I think that's also playing into some of the trends that we're seeing of just access to services. Yeah, Jackie, was there something else you wanted to add there? Yeah, probably just to add on to that. I think there, like Crystal's saying, there is a lot of wait lists um, within the community, you know, for services. And that absolutely is impacting, you know, recovery and healing for many folks. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we've talked about statistics and I think it really weaves well into our, our next question with, um, 
you know, there's so many barriers when it comes to individuals coming forward. I think it's only about 5% of less of survivors of sexual violence report in some fashion uh, through formal means, such as through uh, reporting like agencies or to the police. Um, But why don't people come forward who've experienced sexual violence? What are some of the reasons behind that? Um, And we'll start with Crystal for this one. Yeah, and I think it's really important to remember that anytime we're talking about sexual intimacy, whether that's with consent or without, we are talking about something that is very intimate and a a very personal matter that just generally isn't discussed. Um, So so there's this starting the conversation, we're starting from a topic that isn't widely conversed about within within our friend groups or, or within society. Um, you mix in there with some pretty powerful messages that and societal understandings of what sexual violence really looks like as perpetuated by media outlets. You know, we're all familiar with the laws and law and order and other um, crime focused shows that that portray sexual violence in a very particular manner um, where the, the survivor is fighting for their life and it is very obvious that their life was at risk um, because they're kidnapped in all these other like very theatrical um, situations. And that is can be the way it, sexual violence looks for some people. Uh, however, we know that sexual violence is a continuum or a spectrum and there are uh, what is considered to be a traumatic event, which trauma is the moment when our capacity to cope with the current reality is overwhelmed, um, what that, that moment can be a very um, subjective point for people. And it depends on what is what has their life looked like to date? What has their what has their support systems looked like? What has been their conversations around consent and what is normalized behavior within that sexual context? So um, I think all of these factors compound on top of the fact that there is an underlying violation that has happened to someone where their boundaries were surpassed, they weren't acknowledged or respected. And so you you have quite a few compounding shame factors that that really do um, crop up for people when they when they think about sharing their story. We also know that there's a disproportionate effect of um, reputations being compromised by for the folks who've experienced sexual violence as opposed to the person who perpetrated it. And so people will will consider and worry about if I come forward, how does this, how will it look for potential job opportunities or how will my friends and family think of me? Um, which again are very normal questions to find ourselves asking if we aren't as a society asking those wider questions around what are the systems that are allowing this behavior to occur on such a widespread scale. Um, And so I think a lot of these factors will come up for people as they are considering whether or not they wanna share their story. Um, You mix into that the the amount of disbelief uh, uh, from a societal level that generally uh, it is for whatever reason, people assume, have some sort of assumption that um, people will lie about experience of sexual violence. And in my years of doing this work, that that hasn't been true. Um, 
there's, there's actually not a higher instance of false reporting when it comes to sexual violence than any other uh, false reporting for other crimes. And so uh, when you add in that element of secondary doubt that someone else is going to call your experience into question, um, that can be really intimidating and quite harmful for people who are feeling raw and vulnerable already. Yeah, absolutely. There's such a huge victim blaming piece. That's that's part of that. And and no one is, you know, immune from believing those myths and stereotypes that we hear because they're so pervasive. We even, mm-hmm. you know, internalize them as part of our own experiences to invalidate our own experiences and to think, you know, is it sexual violence because it wasn't in the dark with a stranger out of nowhere? And to, exactly. you know, weigh, is our situation bad enough? Is it worthy enough to, to come forward? Um, and I really liked how you touched on too, how, you know, not only is it um, sexual violence normalized, but what isn't normalized is just general conversations we have about sex and consent um, outside of, you know, maybe a one-time conversation at school or through other means. So. Mm-hmm. Jackie or Katie, was there anything that you uh, would like to add there in terms of barriers for survivors and in coming forward? Yeah, just to add to that stigma, I think that, you know, because I work with people who are survivors of human trafficking, I think that there are elements that exist for people who have intersectional identities that, you know, it makes it harder to navigate in these systems that are not built for them and not built by them. Um, So people who are BIPOC population or who have, um, you know, multiple uh, or have experienced FNCS or have uh, past experience of sexual violence or things like that. All of these intersections add to the layers in which they come forward with and, and it makes it harder for them to navigate systems on their own and the systems themselves are not built for them. So in coming forward, it, it, it creates more stigmatization. And, you know, one that I like to touch on always is people who use substances, which is a reality for many people in this world and often is over stigmatized when going to the police services or going to the hospital because, and, and not always, right? There's some great people out here in Guelph, Wellington, but, but it can be. And that can be a huge uh, deterrent in coming forward because they hear the words, oh, well, you were, you know, you, you were uh, drunk, you were high, you, you know, you had, you didn't know. And, and it's like, yeah, that doesn't really matter. It's still sexual assaults. Um, and, and so, yeah, I would say that that's a really huge stigmatization or barrier for people coming forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned substances too, because so often substances are used to excuse sexual violence but used also to blame the individuals who were under the influence of substances for, you know, bringing it upon themselves. Mm-hmm. Jackie, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, no, I would just echo what everyone said. I mean, the ongoing beliefs and rape myths. I mean, I think that's so important to challenge that, right? Because they become, you know, beliefs, like you said, that we, that get internalized, right? And um, until we start dismantling those, right, I think it's going to continue. And uh, uh, that's really unfortunate. I think that leads us really well into our next question of how, what needs to be done and how can we create environments where it's safe to come forward? Uh, I know Jackie, you just mentioned as well, 
um, dismantling and challenging some of those rape myths that exist, you know, both on an individual level and uh, service provider level and institutional level. Um, but what else can we do as, as individuals and as a society to create environments where survivors feel safe and comfortable coming forward? Uh, Katie, maybe we'll start with you for that one. I, I think that in noticing these barriers, I was thinking about this actually last night, and I think in noticing these barriers, how can we make an environment where it's safe for people to come forward? I think that in, in my my opinion, I think it would be offering wraparound support in these places where you know all parts of the community are talking with each other to help the individual. But I also think that in wraparound support, we need to really articulate that it's choice and client-centered, meaning that the person is directing it. So how can we make it safe? We can listen to the people who are surviving. We can listen to what they need in that moment and we can walk alongside them rather than leading them in any direction. Uh, and, and we can do that as a team, as a community. Um, I also think as a community, uh, touching on Crystal's great point that they made out was that like we need to be working on prevention, talking about it more, creating these spaces where we can talk about it more, where we can talk about parts of it more, consent um, and all of these things. And I think it starts with you know, school, friends, university uh, systems, OW, ODSP, all of these people talking more. And, and they're great in Guelph because we do work so closely together. This community is really tight knit in that way. Um, but I think, yeah, that's how we can make it a safer place. And, um, and I also think uh, making it a safer place would also mean working on dismantling uh, some of these pieces or these patterns that are, um, in place of coming forward uh, and advocating because I think advocacy can feel really good for a survivor uh, and it can feel really empowering and make them feel safe when we are recognizing the barriers that are there but also saying we recognize that barrier is here and here's what we're doing to re kind of slowly remove it. Um, if that makes sense. So for example, uh, substances and recognizing that people use substances and saying, yeah, it's really shitty that people said that to you about that. Uh, and how can we make this better for, for people coming forward next time? Yeah, that's great. Crystal or Jackie, anything to add there? Yeah, I think um, we cannot underestimate the value and importance of listening to survivors who are bravely coming forward. And I think um, it's in our best interest to, when there's an opportunity to um, hear someone's survival story, to really, if it's bringing something up uncomfortable in us or that our first inclination is to kind of doubt this person's experience, I think that's a really good opportunity for us to turn that lens inward and ask ourselves where that's coming from rather than projecting that onto the person who's telling their story and saying, well, there must be some a flaw in the way that they are telling their lived experience. Um, because the reality is, is that there are exactly two, generally there are two people involved in, in instances of sexual violence. There is the person being harmed and the person causing harm. And they are the only two people who really understand what happened in that moment. And so as, third party listeners as people who are coming in along that person's journey of healing. Um, I think it's really important for us to kind of sit with and, and really ask ourselves, what is it that's making us so uncomfortable about hearing this person tell me their, so bravely tell me their experience? Yeah, I would just add to that too. And I think you've, you've both touched on it is the, the importance of education. 
right? I can't say that enough. Um, that's really how we start to dismantle and challenge, right? And education early on, you know, around consent, around all these pieces, I think that's sort of where we where we need to start. And, and that will hopefully, you know, create safer spaces for survivors to come forward, right? And to share their story, right? And not stay silent. Yeah, absolutely, Jackie. And I think that education, you know, we oftentimes talk about it, we talk about it in an institutional sense of, you know, within the school system, within post-secondary, but recognizing that that education can be so powerful when it happens peer to peer, you know, whether that's like sharing a post on social media that gives information about these things, uh, or gives information about services, just collectively you know, anything you can do as an individual to show that, like, you're not someone who tolerates sexual violence, uh, giving the individuals around you the skills and tools to say, you know, if they're perpetuating it in rape culture, like, that's not okay. That's not cool. Um, so recognizing that, you know, everyone has such a role to play in this, whether you're uh, an educator, whether you are just an individual in the world, using whatever platform, whatever voice you have, to engage in that education and to show the community that it's it's not something that's okay. Um, but in terms of, you know, we've talked about the barriers to coming forward uh, and a little bit about how those barriers to accessing services have been impacted through COVID. Uh, but what are some gaps that we see in systems and institutions when it comes to supporting survivors of sexual violence in general? Um, and Jackie, if you wanted to kick us off with this one. Well, I think, you know, many of us see the criminal justice system as sort of the traditional way of seeking justice, seeking, you know, healing. Um, but we know that the system is flawed in so many ways for survivors, right? Especially sexual assault survivors. Um, and I think survivors within this system, like they continue to be scrutinized, right? And negatively impacted. And I think you know, as Katie had mentioned previously, like re-traumatized by that, by that system, you know, and the criminal justice system is a punitive system, right, with the goal of protecting society and holding people accountable. Um, but we also know that most and many survivors don't report, right? And probably one of those reasons um, that they don't go forward is such like the low conviction rate, like I've heard the, the conviction rate as low as 3%. So what kind of message is that sending to survivors, right? What kind of message is that sending to our community, to the public in general? Um, so you, we've got, you know, low reporting, we've got low conviction rates, um, you know, and in many of these systems, we have a lack of trauma-informed services, right? You know, one common thing, you know, is gaps in memories for survivors. Um, we know from a trauma-informed perspective that this is a common trauma impacts memories, right? Impacts a lot of a lot of pieces. So I think that's important to note. Another gap would be the length of the process within the criminal justice system, right? It's a lengthy process. It's lengthy and there's delays, right? Um, I'd also say, you know, survivors don't have a lot of control in that process, very little control. Um, you know, they're in that system, they're a witness, right? As a victim, they're a witness. Um, other barriers, gaps within the system, I would say, you know, mental health, um, disabilities, homelessness, poverty, racialization, 
um, misinformation about queer and trans people, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd say that those are, you know, some of the gaps for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Gaps, especially in terms of the criminal justice system. It's a system in which, you know, how are survivors supposed to have faith that it will bring them justice or accountability when, you know, with the such low rates of, of charges and clearing of charges and really just dissecting their entire experiencing experience with sexual violence um, leads to very little faith too that like this is a crime that will be taken seriously um and so i think you know that leads to rape culture that we talk about it being because it's so normalized it's so often tolerated and so often excused at all levels are there any other gaps crystal or katie that you wanted to talk about in terms of what you're seeing for survivors yeah katie go ahead I think Jackie touched on it really, really well. Um, uh, I often think about it because I get that question a lot from my clients being like, what, like, why is this not happening? Like things like this. And I think that the gap I see is that to use a really bad sports analogy <laughs> is that we're always playing defense. Why we're always playing defense, we're focusing on how we can support the survivor in that moment. And we don't, as the society, put enough like influence and not enough, like we don't, we don't put enough money. We don't put enough support. We don't put up enough, a lot of things in playing offense. Like how can we change the education? How can we look at the people who are get becoming traffickers, not being tra becoming trafficked? How can we support the people who are becoming or perpetuating violence, right? Because uh, we're not even looking at the other side of the team and we're not even, we're not, and in playing offense, we need to be, right? We need to be understanding where these gaps in system are happening for people. Um, and I also think that, you know, within that lens, we can speak to that a lot of sexual violence education, a lot of sexual violence centers focus on people who are gendered. Um, and and that means that we focus a lot on supporting women. And, and not that I think that, that there's anything wrong with that, because we know that traditionally women are more likely to be, you know, I hate the word, but victims of crime, uh, victims of, of, of sexual crime. I like survivors better. But but I also think that we're leaving out a huge number of individuals who are non-binary, who are trans, who are men, uh, and, and we're kind of failing them in that system. And, and I think that that's a huge gap. And then that gap can also be back to that that same analogy with that sports game is that we're half of our team is, is missing here. Right. And we're leaving them out to the wayside. And, and I think that we, that's a huge gap in how we're, we're helping them. Uh, and then the final gap I would say is again, is, is the education piece. So, you know, I think that it's really inconsistent in Ontario because we don't have uh, a similar sexual, we don't have the same, uh, sex ed that we had, you know, with a previous government. And I think that the one that's in, in there now, I would say is failing our children. I mean, I'm, that's my own opinion. That's not called Wellington's opinion, but it's the, you know, I see huge gaps. There's lack of consent, lack of information, lack of uh, information, for people who are queer. Um, and so, you know, that's one gap I would also say, and that's it. But yeah, I, I think there is such an importance to the the level of, of recognizing what um, and who has been brought to the table historically to have this conversation. And um, I think as Katie was mentioning around, you know, uh, queer folks having or trans and non-binary people not having 
a space at the table to, to see themselves reflected in the services that are being provided for sexual violence survivors. Um, and that can be true when there has been historically any unfair power dynamic. So whether in a racialized individual or someone from a lower socioeconomic class, less financial security, those, those um, aspects of their lives have, have historically erased them from the conversation simply because they, they weren't necessarily invited to the table. And so if we're going to look at the gaps, I think especially in, in a climate like we've seen since the pandemic has started kind of a, a refocalization on um, solidarity movements, on, on recognizing power structures in, in society and how those are upheld by our systems, um, I think it's really important for us to, to, as Katie mentioned, really look at who who's at the table and needs to continue to be at this table and who has historically been overlooked or erased. Um, and, and how do we get a conversation going with those folks, with those individuals who have a different lived experience than even what the conversation has, uh, has had as parameters or, or guidelines thus far. Yeah, beautifully put. And I think lived experience, you know, when we think of the criminal justice system too, we often hear of this portrait of like the ideal victim who, you know, didn't drink too much and like didn't engage in quote unquote risky behaviors and has a clean track record, whatever that means. And I think, you know, looking too at other lived experiences before, during, after sexual violence of, you know, where do you live? Who are the kinds of people that you hang out with? Do you have mental health or substance abuse issues? Uh, and just looking at that as, you know, we paint that certain individuals are, you know, not only more likely to experience sexual violence, but in our minds, not our minds, but in some people's minds are certain individuals are more deserving of trauma that happens to them. And so I think that's another big, uh, big gap and barrier when it comes to accessing support services and particularly the gaps in, in the justice system. Um, so longer court times have also been a, something that's related to uh, extended trauma for sexual violence survivors who've been navigating that system. So for those who might be, you know, in the midst of a trial and maybe supporting someone, a loved one who is in the midst of a trial, um, what kind of supportive role could that individual play for a survivor in their life who is going through the criminal justice system? Jackie, we can start with you. Sure. Yeah, I think um, what is is helpful for many survivors going through, you know, the frustration of waiting, right, and delays um, within the criminal justice system, understanding the process can be quite helpful, right? Um, being aware of why things work the way they do, um, why there are delays, um, you know, knowing what to expect and knowing and, and how to plan for that, um, you know, learning coping strategies, how to cope through it, um, knowing too that there is lots of support available in this community for survivors, right? Um, you can reach out, get connected, um, ask them what do they need, right? Um, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is just asking what do they need. Yeah, that's great. And it goes back to the points we've said about leaving it up to them, empowering them, using your role to say that you're you're walking us alongside and helping them empower them to make their own decisions. 
Um, and I think too, recognizing that um, decisions can be very overwhelming to someone who is in a traumatic state or feeling emotionally overwhelmed in some ways. And so really also giving folks time to reflect on what the decisions they need to make are um, to help lessen that burden as they're walking through. There's, there's a, a trial process. There are a lot of factors that are outside of their control or, or feel like they need an immediate decision. And so I think as a support person, it's really helpful, generally speaking, when people can um, help hold the space that survivors might need to, to kind of step back from a decision and really weigh out what is the best way that they want to proceed forward and recognizing that sometimes those decisions don't just happen as quickly as we might like, um, but just being patient with the process. I know justice can mean something different to many individuals and the criminal justice system is usually the most often system that individuals who are seeking, you know, justice for themselves, accountability for perpetrators will seek it through the criminal justice system. But I'm wondering if there are some alternatives to those, you know, seeking justice or closure or support that maybe fall outside of the criminal justice system. I'm wondering, Jackie, if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So there all there are alternatives to the criminal justice system, and um, you know I would encourage survivors to explore all of the options. Um, there's options, you know, that include you know civil and administrative law options. There also seems to be an increased or more interest in restorative justice options as well lately. Um, but in regards to that, you know, the accused has to be willing to take responsibility for for their actions. Um, I think for both, you know, even even civil remedies, I mean, I think there's pros and cons to those. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's workplace um, policies, there's um, human rights protections against uh, sexual and gender based violence. So there are definitely a number of alternatives. Um, community based support, you know, for counseling survivors is another option. And as you said, Jensen, I mean, um, obtaining justice and healing looks different for everyone. Um, so I think honoring survivors' choices uh, is so, so important. And whether that choice is to engage in any of these systems, whether it's seeking counseling, whatever that looks like, um, I think needs to be honored. Um, and to make sure that whatever choice they make is met with, you know, effective, equitable, accountable, um, and trauma-informed support. I think that's so important. Uh, if I can just jump in too, uh, I think also one way that I um, often encourage people, no matter what their what their um, particular choice for for just for justice or closure looks like, um, one thing that I often encourage people to look into is also forms of advocacy as a as a therapeutic way to engage with that systems change that ultimately people want um, or many people want as a, as a result of sexual violence experiences. Um, and so looking at how do you get involved to, to make those systemic level changes that would make it easier for survivors to come forward. And, and that can look like starting a peer support group or writing to your MPP or getting involved with a local organization that is doing advocacy work 
Um, there's there's so many forms of how what advocacy can look like, but it's also to say that as someone who is experiencing or has walked through the experience of sexual violence and, and justice options, as well as just trying to generally have a sense of closure, looking at how can you be a part of the world that you ultimately want to live in. And so normalizing conversations around consent, not just in terms of sexual intimacy, but also just in how we interact with one another on a day to day. And so um, it can look like a lot of different things. And I, I think that's been an effective tool for, for a lot of people to, to get involved at that systems level when when or if the system has failed or or could potentially fail them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you both mentioned is really important, but I love the piece around, you know, how important it is in trauma-informed care to have survivors be, you know, see them as the experts of their own lives and experiences and as individuals supporting survivors, whether that's through formal means, through being a service provider or being a friend and family, not pressuring survivors to, you know, make decisions on, you know, you should report or you should go to the police or you should, you should rather, you know, supporting them in how can I help? Like, what does safe need to feel like for you right now? And centering them in their healing journey and recognizing too that, you know, closure and what that looks like, it might not have that finality, you know, it might not be the one day it's all clear and everything's over and recognizing that, how can that look, that healing look like over a lifetime? And I think a really big and awesome piece of that is, you know, sharing space with other survivors, sharing stories, sharing wisdom. Um, one event that we do every year is, is take back the night. And I think that's a really powerful and amazing opportunity for survivors to share space and stories with one another, and also for the community to learn more and to see that there is space being held for them. Anything else to add there about uh, alternatives to justice and ways that survivors can seek closure or support? The only thing I would add is uh, that I know a lot of the universities are turning to restorative justice circles right now. I know that that's happening in our sister cities in Kitchener and Waterloo a lot. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, a lot of institutions are moving towards because they're seeing the benefits of it. Uh, and they're seeing that like uh, allowance for human uh, and allowance for conversation and communication. And uh, they're also seeing the gaps that we previously talked about in the existing system that already is there. And I think a lot of that is really cool and really interesting. And I think it's something that, you know, as a, as a team, we're all really interested in trying to see how we can understand more and work more with, so. Yeah, and I would also, yeah, exactly, Katie, you know, with the post-secondary institutions and also workplaces, right? What are their policies and procedures on it um, as an alternative? Just to touch on restorative justice as a total and what it looks like, uh, currently there's varying models, but one that's pretty consistent is having a circle of care. So the individual who's the perpetuator of violence would come to that circle with their support people. And then the individual who's the survivor of violence would come to the support circle with their support people that also have the institution that they're involved with. So with Jackie's point, maybe it's a workplace, uh, maybe it's a school, maybe it's um, a larger system or a community. And so those people come forward as well. And they all kind of raise awareness and communicate what the pain and what the hurt and what the needs are. Uh, and it's a lot about choice, listening, uh, like Crystal said, a lot about like uh, seeing what what can be done and what gaps are, are existing within that process and how that happened. 
Uh, and then uh, as a community, as a circle, they come together and meet those needs of the individual who's the survivor of the violence. Um, so that can look like potentially, or one that I have seen is, is someone who um, had an act of graffiti done on their property, had the need for that graffiti to be covered, but also an understanding of what that graffiti was. For that one, it was based in a kind of a racist ideal. So it was about re-educating the individual who did that violence. Uh, in sexual violence, it would look maybe a little bit different and a lot more time and a lot slower, um, but it's it's very unique and, and we can't get um, go away from this process actually uh, is from uh, indigenous communities, uh, originated in uh, Australia and New Zealand and has been you know a little bit appropriated. So we have to recognize that as well as there's large amounts of Buddhist principles that are in, within this. Again, we have to recognize that and where that's coming from and really value the indigenous community that both of those processes are coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you everyone. So we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, how bad things are for both sexual violence as a whole and survivors. And, you know, it's, it's sexual assault prevention month now in Ontario. And, you know, oftentimes with our, with our myths and misconceptions about survivors, what sexual violence prevention is often framed as is, you know, don't walk home alone at night or um, be careful of what you drink or what you wear. Uh, and that individuals can, you know, prevent their own sexual assaults by changing their behaviors, but really recognizing that sexual violence prevention is needs to engage everyone. Um, and so just to end off here, what does, what can prevention work can be done in the Guelph Wellington region around sexual violence? Uh, and what does this look like in our homes, in our workplaces, in uh, through education and in the community? And Katie, you can start us off with this one. So I think prevention, we chatted about this throughout our, our uh, time here, is, is, you know, rooted in education as the main thing and in having these conversations and communication as well. I think it's rooted in, we, we start that, uh, we look at that, you know, from my education, we talked about Bronneman's circles of influence, right? So we look at our first circle of influence, which is our family and our friends. And then we expand a little bit larger and we look at our community. And then we expand a little bit larger and we look at our work and institutions. And then we expand a little bit larger from that. And we look at our, you know, provincial and national systems. And I think that we first have to start with those smaller circles. So we have to start with that, our family, our friends, our peers, having those conversations like Jensen's so said, you know, having that hashtag, having that, that kind of uh, putting it in someone's face, right? Having that, allowing that to take up space in our brain uh, in whatever fashion that looks like, I think is a really good tool of, of prevention and what we can do. Uh, as well, I think that education on a whole and advocating for the education on a whole, like Crystal had said, writing to your MP, writing to your school board, writing to your community board and saying, yeah, this is not okay. These are not okay. We need to fill these gaps is also really huge. And then on a national scale, I think that we uh, really need to empower our voters or in our voting cards. When we vote, we make a decision. And this could be a topic that we make a decision on, uh, you know, in, in empowering who we choose to represent us on a provincial scale and also on a national scale. Uh, and then smaller, what can we actually, like what are some tangible things we can do? Donations, I think they go a long way. I think we uh, can think of the needs of an individual who's a survivor and we can think of the basic needs of shelter, food, access to clothing, communication tools, um, cell phones. You know, those aren't easy to access and donating to agencies, not just 
not just ours, not that I'm plugging that, but, but doing to agencies like victim services, like uh, Wyndham house, like, um, uh, like, like our shelter Marianne's place or Laura house or uh, VWAP, like all these places that do such wonderful things for our, our survivors in the community. Um, and, and donating, you know, what you can, uh, maybe that looks like time. Maybe that looks like putting an Instagram post. Maybe it looks like a, um, a card, a gift card, but something like that. Um, and then finally for prevention work, I also think that, um, being a, a person who doesn't perpetuate harm is hard. Uh, and I think that that how to become a person that doesn't perpetuate harm lies in you recognizing and owning your shit. Uh, and, and that means that if you make a mistake, you make a mistake and you own it. Uh, and I think that that is sm from small scale to big scale. Uh, so if you make a mistake and you say something that was inappropriate, you make a joke that was very inappropriate that maybe talked about sexual violence in a way or talked about gender in a way that was really not very cool, own it. We're, we're all learning. We're all kind of trying to piece these things together. So. Yeah, I think Katie spoke beautifully to to the various ways that people can get engaged with um, trying to do prevention work. And I, I really just want to underline that the importance of having conversations when um, they come up around what what is a certain joke or a certain comment really communicating? And um, is that conducive to believing survivors? Is it is it challenging? rape culture? Is it challenging the way that we currently think about consent as limited to conversations around sexual intimacy as opposed to general consent is, is accepting that people have a right to determine what they are comfortable with and what they are comfortable not with. And, and it takes all of us to respect each other on both ends of that spectrum, whether you are the person trying to voice what you need or want or the person trying to respond. And so I think it really does, um, one of the possibly best ways for us to engage in this conversation, again, is um, questioning ourselves and what are the misbeliefs and the, the misinformation that we believe and hold dear to our own understanding of this topic and how we respond and how much of our conversation is focused on survivors as opposed to the structures that allow systems of harm to to occur in our society or in our in our own little microcosm of society with our own friends and family. Yeah, beautifully put. Jackie, anything to add there? No, I think um, Crystal and Katie, you know, covered all of it. It's, um, you know, I think prevention is the responsibility of all of us, right? Not just those of us that do this work, but I think a community response, right? The education, challenging those, those stereotypes, those myths, all super important, right? And I think we all have a role to play in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we talked to about like different systems of oppression and looking at like the root causes of sexual violence and what those are and even things such as um, you know gender norms and stereotypes and talking about you know how we equate um, traditional masculinity with um, you know being potentially aggressive towards women and what that looks like and I think part of that too is that you know who should get this education and I think that that 
the answer is everyone. Um, you know, whether you're a service provider, whether you are a young person, any any age, uh, any social location, recognizing that everyone can be part of the solution, and that can start with you know your own challenging your own biases and attitudes, helping to educate others. Um, using platforms to support survivors, using if you have any means to donate uh, your funds or your time to causes that are doing that work. Um, so looking at those root causes of, you know, um, poverty, mental health, um, stigma, gender inequality, um, the victim blaming that we've talked about, and looking at each of those structures and seeing how can we, through our every individual uh, days and actions, be part of that solution. Crystal, did you have something else there? No, I think, um, yeah, I love, I love wrapping up on the message that there is some way that we can all participate in having a different conversation and perhaps one that is more helpful or more supportive to the folks who do have the lived experience of walking through experiences of sexual violence. And so um, all I can encourage everyone is, is to dive in, dive into the conversation and and really whether that looks like questioning yourself and why it feels so uncomfortable or or like Jensen's any of the ways that Jensen or Katie so beautifully spoke to um I think it's just important for us all to get involved and and start broadening our conversation around what does consent really mean for each other and and how do we go about creating that change that we really do want to see mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And for those, you know, we touched upon education as being such an important resource in violence prevention and making that education as accessible and available as possible to all. Uh, and so for any of our listeners who may be listening and thinking, hey, I really want to know more, I want to do more, um, you know, I want trainings for my workplace, for the students I teach, uh, for community organizations that I'm a part of, um, our public education program is designed to do exactly that, which is to provide free workshops and trainings and resources to help you uh, empower you with the skills and tools uh, and knowledge to be leaders in this work alongside of us, uh, recognizing that we can't do this work alone. Um, and if anyone who is listening to this is interested in our educational opportunities, please reach out to us. Uh, my email uh, will be in the description of this podcast, and we would love to hear from you and speak to your group. And just before we wrap up here, uh, was there any closing final thoughts you folks wanted to add? Maybe something that you didn't get to say today that you wanted to close off with or any information you wanted to give folks about the Guelph Wines Women in Crisis Sexual Assault Center and how survivors in the community might be able to access supports? Um, I can uh, start with that. I mean, we're here. I would say that that is you know, a good place to start. Uh, the Sexual Assault Center at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. You can contact us at 519-836-1110. We're here and I would say we'll provide a safe space, right? To see you, to hear you. Uh, you're not alone in this. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I I think um, we all have a play, a a role to play in in conversations around sexual violence um, and I think being brave enough to start having those conversations will help us to be brave enough to follow through with accountability and and see those more major shifts that 
that many, many people want to start seeing um, and many, many people are very ready for. Um, so I think we're joining the conversation and, and learning from the folks who have led in this work for, for a very long time and also um, from the folks who've walked through experiences of sexual violence is, is a great way to just start having that hard conversation and really getting our hands dirty and, and what needs to be done next. Yeah, and I would just add, I think that's really important, you know, that that all of us are involved, right? And ask the questions, right? Is this what you want for your community, right? When you have the majority of survivors not coming forward, right? Ask yourself, why don't survivors come forward? Is this the community that we want? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, it's a, it's a collective responsibility and in, everyone can play a role in that. And I think just, you know, sometimes people think, you know, I'm just one person. There might not be anything that I can do about this. And recognizing that even, you know, by taking an hour out of your day to listen to this podcast, you have made a choice and an effort to learn more, to do more, and to continue to seek out opportunities to engage in learning, to share those with others, to follow us on social media and share our content with others, uh, see the workshops that we're hosting that you can join in at any time, you know, commit to doing this and, and then commit to doing it over a long period of time um, to make it part of your, your everyday work that you're doing. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on social media to keep updated on when we release future podcast episodes. If you are in crisis and seeking support, you can call our 24-hour crisis line at 519-836-5710 or toll-free at 1-800-265-SAFE. You can also call our general administrative line for general information about our programs and services at 519 519- 8361110 If you're interested in public education opportunities from our agency please email wiceducator@gwomeninchrisis.org Take care and have a wicked day